With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, everyone. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Our story today takes you back to 1942, when American men and boys were signing up for the armed services, eager to fight for their country, and in many cases, just as eager to get away from home. This is the incredible story of a 12-year-old boy eager to fight the Japanese after Pearl Harbor, and eager to get away from an abusive stepfather a 12-year-old boy who made it onto the newly christened battleship South Dakota, which went right into the action, fought well, and took a terrible pounding. The story today covers both America's youngest hero, as well as one of her most decorated battleships, the South Dakota, the one the Navy was to call Battleship X. Some kids grow up early. It's largely a matter of DNA, or so they say. It can also be a matter of environment. There's also a rumor out there that the late bloomers age well, so it comes out okay on the opposite end. I have no idea if that's true, but it would be interesting to see if any serious studies have been done on that. I do recall that the U.S. Army's most decorated hero, Audie Murphy, had what was described as a baby face, handsome enough to make him a movie star playing himself into hell and back, but we'll never know how well he aged due to his early death. Audie Murphy died in a plane crash near Roanoke, Virginia in 1971 at the age of 46. In the case of Calvin Graham, our hero today, he started shaving just before he turned 12, having heard that the more you shave, the faster that beard grows. Probably no truth to that one either, but we've all heard the rumor. Calvin Graham was just 11, and in the 6th grade in Crockett, Texas, when he hatched his plan to lie about his age and join the Navy. One of seven children living at home with an abusive stepfather, he and an older brother moved into a cheap rooming house, and Calvin supported himself by selling newspapers and delivering telegrams on weekends and after school. Even though he moved out, his mother would occasionally visit, sometimes to simply sign his report cards at the end of a semester. The country was at war, however, and being around newspapers afforded the boy the opportunity to keep up on events overseas. I didn't like Hitler to start with, Graham later told a reporter. When he learned that some of his cousins had died in battles, he knew what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to fight. In those days, you could join up at 16 with your parents' consent, but they preferred 17, Graham later said. But he had no intention of waiting five more years. He was 11 then, but he looked 17. That's when he began to shave, hoping it would make him look older when he met with military recruiters. Then he lined up with some buddies who forged his mother's signature and stole a notary stamp from a local hotel 
and waited to enlist. Gilbert King, writing for the Smithsonian, writes, At five foot two and just a hundred and twenty-five pounds, Graham dressed in an older brother's clothes and fedora and practiced talking deep. What worried him most was not that an enlistment officer would spot the forged signature. It was the dentist who would peer into the mouths of potential recruits. I knew he'd know how young I was by my teeth, Graham later recalled. He lined up behind a couple of guys he knew were already 14 or 15, and when the dentist kept saying I was 12, I said I was 17. At last, Graham played his ace, telling the dentist that he knew for a fact that the boys in front of him weren't 17 yet, and the dentist had let them through. Finally, Graham recalled, he said he didn't have time to mess with me, and he let me go ahead. Graham maintained that the Navy knew that he and the others on that line that day were underage, but we were losing our war then, so they took six of us. It wasn't uncommon for boys to lie about their age in order to serve. Ray Jackson, who joined the Marines at 16 during World War II, founded the group Veterans of Underage Military Service in 1991 and enlisted more than 1,200 active members, including 26 women. Some of these guys came from large families, and there wasn't enough food to go around, and this was a way out, Jackson told a reporter. Others just had family problems and wanted to get away. Another example of an underage recruit, this time a 13-year-old at the time of enlistment, James Clark, left McKeesport, PA to become an Army paratrooper in 1943. Scott Fontaine writes in 2008 for the Tacoma News Tribune in an article titled Meet the youngest surviving World War II veteran. James Clark looked big for his age as a teenager and ran with an older crowd. So when his friends reported to the draft board, he followed. It was 1943, and the country needed troops. Young men were supposed to report when they turned 18. About a month later, Clark received his orders for basic training. The U.S. Army had just drafted a 13-year-old. They didn't ask me for any proof of age, said Clark a 78-year-old retiree living in Shelton, Washington, when this article was written. I figured out what year I needed to say to make me 18, and I just told them. They didn't ask anything more about that. And Clark's story is not unusual. At least 200,000 men and women under the legal age served during World War II, according to an estimate from the Veterans of Underage Military Service Organization. We'll get back to young Calvin Graham right after these sponsor messages. And now our story continues. Calvin Graham told his mother he was going to visit relatives in San Diego. Instead, he dropped out of the seventh grade and shipped off to San Diego for basic training. There, he said, the drill instructors were aware of the underage recruits and often made them run extra miles and lug heavier packs. After six weeks of basic training, he was walking up the gangplank of the USS South Dakota. With powerful engines, extensive firepower, and heavy armor, the newly christened battleship USS South Dakota steamed out of Philadelphia in August of 1942, spoiling for a fight. The crew was made up of green boys, new recruits who enlisted after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, who had no qualms about either their destination or the action they were likely to see. Brash and confident, the crew couldn't get through the Panama Canal fast enough, and their captain, Thomas Gatch, made no secret of the grudge he bore against the Japanese. No ship more eager to fight ever entered the Pacific, one naval historian wrote. In September of 1942, the South Dakota, while pulling out of her berth in the Lehigh Passage 
damaged 150 feet of her hull on a coral reef, requiring a quick trip back to Pearl for repairs. She left Pier 12 at Pearl Harbor on October 12th, and with the company of a half-dozen destroyers needed to protect her from submarines, she steamed toward action, and soon there was plenty to be had. In an attempt to drive Allied forces from Guadalcanal and nearby islands and end the stalemate that had existed since September of 1942, the Imperial Japanese Army planned a major ground offensive on Guadalcanal for October 20th through 25th, 1942. In support of this offensive, and with the hope of engaging Allied naval forces, Japanese carriers and other large warships moved into a position near the southern Solomon Islands. From this location, the Japanese naval forces hoped to engage and decisively defeat any Allied naval forces, especially carrier forces, that responded to the ground offensive. Allied naval forces also hoped to meet the Japanese naval forces in battle, with the same objectives of breaking the stalemate and decisively defeating their adversary. The Japanese ground offensive on Guadalcanal was underway with the battle for Henderson Field, while the naval warships and aircraft from the two adversaries confronted each other on the morning of October 26, 1942, just north of the Santa Cruz Islands. By October 26, the USS South Dakota was in the middle of the action in the South Pacific in what became known as the Battle of Santa Cruz. The fight started with both the Japanese and U.S. fleets searching for each other, and it was the Japanese which spotted the location of the U.S. carrier Hornet and destroyed it after a ferocious battle. Later, the Enterprise and its support ships, including the South Dakota, found themselves fighting for their lives, besieged by Japanese dive bombers, torpedoes, and fighter planes. The battle soon grew into a wild melee of attacking planes and anti-aircraft fire, much of it coming from the battleship South Dakota, with now 13-year-old first-class seaman Calvin Graham manning one of the gun batteries on the South Dakota. As Japanese Zeros flew across the starboard quarter of the formation against Enterprise, their course taking them past the guns of the South Dakota. That battleship launched a scathing fire against them. Some of the Zeros purposely dropped and flew the length of the battleship at deck level, purposely drawing fire from the South Dakota's gunners to take their eyes, getting the South Dakota's gunners to take their eyes off the dive bombers above. A side note, a number of African-American and Filipino mess workers served as anti-aircraft gunners that day. 27-year-old cook Walter Davis, Jr. from Birmingham, Alabama, an African-American mess attendant from the wardroom, manned a 20-millimeter gun during the action. A lot of us were frightened, Davis afterward explained, but we didn't have time to think of getting them before they got us. During one of the attacks, a Japanese fighter plane strafed the deck of the South Dakota, hitting Davis with three bullets. Davis suffered abdominal wounds and two broken ribs, but the adrenaline generated from his fear prevented him from realizing the extent of his injuries, and he continued to stand by his gun. Ensign George L. Wren, piloting a returning Wildcat to the Enterprise, noticed that a ring of fire blazed from the South Dakota as her guns filled the sky with deadly flakbursts, and some of the American planes rose to escape the devastation. One Avenger pilot had to ditch at sea to avoid the anti-aircraft fire from the South Dakota. Standing on the bridge, Captain Gatch watched as a 500-pound bomb struck the South Dakota's forward 16-inch gun turret. The South Dakota carried three gun turrets, one forward, one starboard, and one port turret, each turret containing three guns. The barrel of each gun was 60 feet long, about the length of one-and-a-half school buses. Each shell was 16 inches wide. I visited the deck of the World War II battleship USS Wisconsin here in Norfolk, Virginia, 
and the guide told me that their gun barrels could deliver a 2,700-pound shell 16 miles with accuracy. When you stand under those huge barrels, you believe it. The explosion injured 50 men on the South Dakota, including the skipper, and killed one. The ship's armor was so thick, many of the crew were unaware they'd been hit. But word quickly spread that Gatch had been knocked unconscious. Quick-thinking quartermasters managed to save the captain's life. His jugular vein had been severed, and the ligaments in his arms suffered permanent damage. But some on board were aghast that he didn't hit the deck when he saw the bomb coming. I consider it beneath the dignity of a captain of an American battleship to flop for a Japanese bomb, Gatch later said. The ship's young crew, thoroughly set on adrenaline, continued to fire at anything in the air, including American bombers that were low on fuel and trying to land on the Enterprise. The South Dakota was quickly getting a reputation for being wild-eyed and quick to shoot, and Navy pilots were soon warned not to fly anywhere near it. But it was also racking up a count on Japanese dive bombers, torpedo planes, and fighters. The Enterprise, which was the aircraft carrier which the South Dakota was charged with protecting, was hit twice by dive bombers and was crippled during the battle, but her crew saved her from fires, and her captain had swerved to miss torpedoes nine times, resulting in the saving of the carrier and making it awfully hard for some of his planes to land on that carrier deck, resulting in some wild pictures which survived the war. By the end of the fighting in the Solomons, she was the only American carrier still afloat in the Pacific. Her crew posted a sign on deck reading, Enterprise versus Japan, which indicated that they knew what the situation was, and anyone could guess that they were very much in need of revenge, which they were able to get two weeks later during the Battle of Guadalcanal, once they'd received repairs. Their second carrier in the battle, the Hornet, was sunk. After the Battle of Santa Cruz, the South Dakota claimed to have shot down 32 enemy planes on October 26th alone. After the Battle of Santa Cruz, both sides claimed victory. The Americans stated that two Shokaku-class fleet carriers had been hit with bombs and eliminated. Kincaid's summary of damage to the Japanese included hits to a battleship, three heavy cruisers, and a light cruiser, and possible hits on another heavy cruiser. In reality, Shokaku, Zuiho, and Chikuma were the only ships hit during the battle, none of which sank. For their part, the Japanese asserted that they sank three American carriers, one battleship, one cruiser, and one destroyer. Actual American losses comprised the carrier Hornet and the destroyer Porter, and damage to the Enterprise, the light cruiser San Juan, the destroyer Smith, and the battleship South Dakota. The loss of Hornet was a severe blow to Allied forces in the South Pacific, leaving Enterprise and Saratoga as the only operational Allied carriers in the entire Pacific theater. As Enterprise retreated from the battle, the crew posted a sign on the flight deck, Enterprise versus Japan. Enterprise received temporary repairs at New Caledonia, and although not fully restored, returned to the Southern Solomons area just two weeks later to support Allied forces during the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal. There, she played an important role in what turned out to be the decisive naval engagement in the overall campaign for Guadalcanal when her aircraft sank several Japanese warships and troop transports during the naval skirmishes around Henderson Field. Although the Battle of Santa Cruz was a tactical victory for the Japanese in terms of ships sunk, it came at a high cost for their naval forces, as Junio was the only active aircraft carrier left to challenge Enterprise or Henderson Field for the remainder of the Guadalcanal campaign. Zuikaku, despite being undamaged and having recovered the aircraft from the two damaged carriers, returned to home islands via truck 
for training and aircraft ferrying duties, returning to the South Pacific only in February of 43 to cover the evacuation of Japanese ground forces from Guadalcanal. The most significant losses for the Japanese Navy were an air crew. The U.S. lost 81 of the 175 aircraft that were available at the start of the battle. Of these, 33 were fighters, 28 were dive bombers, and 20 were torpedo bombers. However, only 26 pilots and aircrew members were lost. The Japanese fared much worse, especially in airmen. In addition to losing 99 aircraft of the 203 involved in the battle, they lost 148 pilots and aircrew members, including two dive bomber group leaders, three torpedo squadron leaders, and 18 other section or flight leaders. The most notable casualties were the commanders of the first two strikes, Murata and Seki. 49% of the Japanese torpedo bomber air crews involved in the battle were killed, along with 39% of the dive bomber crews and 20% of the fighter pilots. It should be noted that of these totals, the South Dakota was responsible for quite a few. The Japanese ended up losing more air crew at Santa Cruz than they'd lost in each of the three previous carrier battles at Coral Sea, Midway, and Eastern Solomons. By the end of the Santa Cruz battle, at least 409 of the 765 elite Japanese carrier aviators who had participated in the attack on Pearl Harbor were dead. Many of these men, maybe all of them, who had signed up to avenge Pearl Harbor were given their due. Having lost so many of its veteran carrier aircrew, and with no quick way to replace them, the Japanese had received a huge strategic defeat. Admiral Naguma was relieved of command shortly after the Battle of Santa Cruz and reassigned to shore duty in Japan. He acknowledged that the victory was incomplete. He would later write, This battle was a tactical win, but a shattering strategic loss for Japan. Considering the great superiority of our enemy's industrial capacity, we must win every battle overwhelmingly in order to win this war. This last one, although a victory, unfortunately, was not an overwhelming victory. The Battle of Santa Cruz effectively ended any hope the Japanese Navy might have had of scoring a decisive victory before the industrial might of the U.S. placed that goal entirely out of their reach. End note, the Japanese were never again able to enter a carrier battle with seasoned air crew. Just weeks later at the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, the South Dakota encountered eight Japanese destroyers, and with deadly accurate 16-inch guns, the South Dakota set fire to three of them. They never knew what sank them, Commander Gatch would recall. One Japanese ship set its searchlights on the South Dakota, and the South Dakota took 28 enemy hits, temporarily losing power. Young Graham was manning his gun when shrapnel tore through his jaw and mouth. Another hit knocked him down, and he fell through three stories of superstructure. Still, the now 13-year-old made it to his feet, dazed and bleeding, and helped pull other crew members to safety while others were thrown by the force of the explosions, their bodies aflame, into the Pacific Ocean. I took belts off the dead and made tourniquets for the living and gave them cigarettes and encouraged them all night, Graham later said. It was a long night. It aged me. The shrapnel had knocked out his front teeth, and he had flash burns from the hot guns, but he was fixed up with salve and a couple of stitches, he recalled. I didn't do any complaining because half the ship was dead. It was a while before they worked on my mouth. In fact, the ship had casualties of 38 men killed and 60 wounded. Regaining power, and after inflicting heavy damage to the Japanese ships, 
the South Dakota rapidly disappeared in the smoke. Captain Gatch would later remark of his green men, saying, Not one of the ship's company flinched from his post or showed the least disaffection. With the Japanese Imperial Navy under the impression that it had sunk the South Dakota, the legend of Battleship X was born. One reason the South Dakota became such a target was that much of their electrical power was knocked out. There's been much talk that someone hit the wrong switch and knocked the power out even before the ship was fired upon. Official naval reports filed later said that the South Dakota was hit by at least 26 projectiles, one of which, according to official reports, caused electrical failures which knocked out fire control circuits as well as all radio transmission and radar and limited all firing systems, rendering the South Dakota an easy target for Japanese planes. The Japanese were able to wreck the structure of the South Dakota and listed her as sunk in the after-battle reports, but she survived to return to Pearl for repairs and a name change. The outcome of the naval battle of Guadalcanal was the failure of the Japanese to deliver needed reinforcements to their troops at Guadalcanal who were fighting U.S. Marines, who wanted control of Henderson Field. The failure to deliver to Guadalcanal most of the troops and especially supplies in the convoy prevented the Japanese from launching another offensive to retake Henderson Field. Thereafter, the Imperial Navy was able to deliver only subsistence supplies and a few replacement troops to Japanese Army forces on Guadalcanal. Because of the continuing threat from Allied aircraft based at Henderson Field, plus nearby U.S. aircraft carriers, the Japanese had to continue to rely on Tokyo Express warship deliveries to their forces on Guadalcanal. These supplies and replacements were not enough to sustain Japanese troops on the island, who, by December 7, 1942, were losing about 50 men each day from malnutrition, disease, and Allied ground and air attacks. On December 12, 1942, the Japanese Navy proposed that Guadalcanal be abandoned. Despite opposition from Japanese Army leaders, who still hoped that Guadalcanal could be retaken from the Allies, Japan's Imperial General Headquarters, with approval from the Emperor, agreed on December 31st to the evacuation of all Japanese forces from the island and establishment of a new line of defense for the Solomons on New Georgia. Thus, the naval battle of Guadalcanal was the last major attempt by the Japanese to seize control of the seas around Guadalcanal or to retake the island. In contrast, the U.S. Navy was thereafter able to resupply the U.S. forces at Guadalcanal at will, including the delivery of two fresh divisions by late December of 1942. The inability to neutralize Henderson Field doomed the Japanese effort to successfully combat the Allied conquest of Guadalcanal. Upon learning of the results of the battle, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt commented, It would seem that the turning point in this war has at last been reached. Historian Eric Hamill sums up the significance of the naval battle of Guadalcanal this way. On November 12, 1942, the Japanese Imperial Navy had the better ships and the better tactics. After November 15th, three days later, its leaders lost heart and it lacked the strategic depth to face the burgeoning U.S. Navy and its vastly improving weapons and tactics. The Japanese never got better, while, after November of 1942, the U.S. Navy never stopped getting better. General Alexander Vandergrift, the commander of the troops on Guadalcanal, paid tribute to the sailors who fought the battle. We believe the enemy has undoubtedly suffered a crushing defeat. We thank Admiral Kincaid for his intervention yesterday. We thanked Lee for a sturdy effort last night. 
Our own aircraft has been grand in its relentless hammering of the foe. All these efforts are appreciated, but our greatest homage goes to Callahan, Scott, and their men, who with magnificent courage against seemingly hopeless odds drove back the first hostile attack and paved the way for the success to follow. To them the men of Cactus lift their battered helmets in deepest admiration. In less than four months, the South Dakota would limp back to the Brooklyn Naval Yard in New York for repairs to extensive damage suffered in some of World War II's most ferocious battles at sea. Gatch and his young crew were honored, and the ship would become one of the most decorated warships in U.S. Navy history and acquire a new moniker to reflect its secret existence. The Japanese, as it turned out, were convinced the vessel had been destroyed at sea, and the Navy was only too happy to keep the mystery alive stripping the South Dakota of identifying markings and avoiding any mention of it in communications and even sailors' diaries. When newspapers later reported on the ship's remarkable accomplishments in the Pacific Theater, they referred to it simply as Battleship X. In mid-December, Calvin Graham received a bronze star for distinguishing himself in combat, as well as a purple heart for his injuries. But he couldn't bask in glory with his fellow crewmen while their ship was being repaired. Graham's mother, reportedly having recognized her son in newsreel footage, wrote the Navy, revealing the gunner's true age. Graham returned to Texas and was thrown in a brig at Corpus Christi, Texas, for almost three months. Thanks, Mom, for all the care and attention. Battleship X returned to the Pacific and continued to shoot Japanese planes out of the sky. Graham, meanwhile, managed to get a message out to his sister Pearl, who complained to the newspapers that the Navy was mistreating the, quote, baby vet, end quote. The Navy eventually ordered Graham's release, but not before stripping him of his medals for lying about his age and revoking his disability benefits. He was simply tossed from jail with a suit and a few dollars in his pocket, and no honorable discharge. Back in Houston, though, he was treated as a celebrity. Reporters were eager to write his story, and when the war film Bombardier premiered at a local theater, the film's star, Pat O'Brien, invited Graham to the stage to be saluted by the audience. But the attention quickly faded. At age 13, Graham tried to return to school, but he couldn't keep pace with students his age and quickly dropped out. Try to imagine yourself returning to middle school after living through the Battle of the Coral Seas as a gunner on a battleship, feeling like you now belong to a much older generation. He married at age 14, became a father the following year, and found work as a welder in a Houston shipyard. But neither his job nor his marriage lasted long. At 17 years old, and divorced, and with no service record, because it had been expunged, Graham was about to be drafted when he enlisted in the Marine Corps. In 1951, he broke his back in a fall, from which he received 20% service-connected disability. The only work he could find after that was selling magazine subscriptions. When President Jimmy Carter was elected in 1976, Graham began writing letters, hoping that Carter, who was an old Navy man, might be sympathetic. All Graham had wanted was an honorable discharge so he could get help with his medical and dental expenses. I had already given up fighting for the discharge, Graham said at the time, but then they came along with this discharge program for deserters. I know they had their reasons for doing what they did, but I figure I damn sure deserved more than they did. In 1977, Texas Senators Lloyd Benson and John Tower introduced a bill to give Graham his discharge, and in 1978, 
President Carter announced that it had been approved and that Graham's medals would be restored, with the exception of the Purple Heart. Ten years later, President Ronald Reagan signed legislation approving disability benefits for Graham. At the age of 12, Calvin Graham broke the law to serve his country at a time when the U.S. military might well be accused of having had a don't-ask-don't-tell policy with regard to underage enlistees. For fear of losing their benefits or their honorable discharges, many baby vets never came forward to claim the nation's gratitude. It wasn't until 1994, two years after he died, that the military relented and returned the seaman's last medal, his Purple Heart, to his family. Remember how we mentioned the story of James Clark? He, too, was court-martialed for lying about his age. But in his case, the charges didn't stick because the draft board never asked to see his birth certificate. A few footnotes to our story. Graham's gunnery officer on the South Dakota and the man to whom he admitted his true age was Sergeant Shriver, who later married JFK's sister, Eunice Kennedy, headed the Peace Corps, and ran for president in 1976. And our final footnote. In 1994, the Navy finally agreed to give him a Purple Heart for his injuries suffered off Guadalcanal. Graham didn't live to see it, though, having died two years before. We hope you enjoyed this story of America's youngest World War II hero. And if you did enjoy it, please do stop and send us a kind review. We always appreciate reviews at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We also appreciate our supporters at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, where for just about the price of a blended cup of coffee every month, our supporters are helping us get to 2001 Stories. And just about every week, I'll send them an ad-free early bird release of one of the following week's episodes. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the story. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Until next Sunday, everyone, at noon Eastern time, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. And note number three, we'll put up a picture of Calvin Graham at our 1001 Heroes Facebook page.